This podcast is brought to you in part by the estate of Bob Nelson. Bob was a lover of all things San Diego and a longtime supporter of Voice of San Diego and its podcasts. We at Voice of San Diego are honored to have his support during his lifetime and continued support through his estate planning. Join culture creator Ramel Wallace, museum CEO Micah Parson, philanthropist Erwin Jacobs, and urban agriculturist Diane Moss on season two of Stop and Talk, a podcast about the future of the San Diego region. How can we create a vibrant region that celebrates our cultural richness and economic strength? Find out and hear other San Diego experts on Stop and Talk. Discover seasons one and two now at stopandtalkpodcast.com. That's stopandtalkpodcast.com. Are you passionate about resolving conflicts and making positive impact in the world? Then USD's Conflict Management and Resolution Master's Program may be for you. Learn to address conflicts at all levels, from personal disputes to global crises. Join the Kroc School's dedicated community fostering peace and understanding while you acquire practical skills to navigate diverse settings. Apply now and be the change you want to see in the world. Visit sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. That's sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. Are you looking to engage with regional decision makers, business leaders, elected officials, and industry professionals committed to improving downtown San Diego? Join the Downtown San Diego Partnership. As a member, you'll receive access to exclusive resources, exposure to special programming, networking functions, and additional opportunities unmatched by any other local membership-based organization. Join the driving forces behind the future of downtown San Diego. For a 10% discount, become a member today. Thanks for joining us on this Voice of San Diego podcast bonus episode. I'm Scott Lewis, the CEO and Editor-in-Chief at Voice of San Diego, This week, we are dropping a special episode from a different show, the Emo Brown Podcast. It's hosted by Steve Garcia, and this episode features an interview he did with me. Uh, He was kind enough to let me on his show and interview me. It was a great conversation. We talked about my history a bit, but also the mission at Voice of San Diego, what we do, how we do it, and what we owe San Diego. So I wanted to share that discussion with you. Hope you like it. Jefe de jefes, look at you, man. I follow you on Twitter, man. Yeah, this is so cool. I, I see you on all the social medias. I'm like, oh, what's going on? And Voice of San Diego has been one of those publications that's been around for a long time. You know, early 2000, I think you were telling me. And uh, you guys do the dirty work. You guys kind of like shed light on 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 situations or, or, or on developments that normally don't get a lot of attention. The way I like to put it is that we're we're either making sense of what people, leaders are saying or we're finding out what they don't want to say. Yeah. And so that's, uh, it's, it's sometimes funny. they go hand in hand. <laughs> it, it gets a little tense sometimes. So Mr. Like Scott it. Lewis, before yeah. we get into voice of San Diego, tell me a little bit about yourself, where you're from, what brought you to our fair city? You know, I grew up mostly in, in Colorado and then I moved to Utah when I was uh, about 12 and grew up there then. And that was a different place, obviously. And met my wife in college and she had already committed to the Navy and, and she ended up bringing us down here and, 
uh, been trying to make it work as a career since. And Lucky you, man. Yeah, it's cool. And San Diego is the kind of place you can show up. And even if you're not from here, you can kind of make, make a life. And especially with journalism, you just start covering something and you can make a difference really quickly because there's just a lot of great stories here. What brought you into journalism? What, what, what piqued the interest for you to kind of delve into that? I think the biggest step for me was working at the the college paper at the University of Utah. I thought that was the most important institution on earth. <laughs> you know, I was always fighting for it. I was always thinking it was so important. And, and I think that 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 just carried over. It, I was going to go to law or go into, you know, grad school or something like that. But telling stories uh, was was my passion. And, and I was okay at writing and, and it came through and I just kept doing more and more of it. And, and, uh, that realized, I just realized that's, that's what I was going to do. How does one become like, uh, get into journalism? And so it's, you started, I'm assuming in high school and you said you, you really delved into it in college in Utah. And then after that, do you just start doing like freelance work? Do you start yeah. kind of poking around? And so, no, I actually, in, in high school, I didn't do anything. I didn't write. I was bad student. Um, in a bad student <laughs> in college, uh, I was also kind of lost, uh, but I liked doing, I, I basically, I was, I was mad at something that the newspaper had written and I was, I just wrote a response and they're like, oh, you think you're so smart. Why don't you come, you know, do this? And I was like, okay, thanks. <laughs> and so, uh, it used to be when I was in that, in that group that you would, you would take an internship at a paper and you work nights or something. And then you try to get a job at a little paper, like in Kansas, and then you get a little bit bigger paper and then you move your way up like the ladder like that. But as my career was developing, everything kind of started falling apart. And so I kind of had to make my own uh, path. So that's the best way. I mean, that's how I figured most of the things that I figured out is when shit starts going sideways on me, it's kind of like, all right, well, how am I going to figure this out? How do I create my own path? So you came down to San Diego with your wife. How soon before you kind of ran into Voice of San Diego? So I was uh, at, when we arrived here, I, I just cast about for any job possible. And the, the Daily Transcript, which was a business paper at the time, offered me a job for 11 bucks an hour to cover water and real estate. And I thought those were the two worst beats possible. But I loved them. I, it was right at 2004, 2003, when the, the housing market was going nuts. And I learned all about mortgages and, you know, assets and all these, the finance world. And then I learned about the water world and that's fascinating. Especially down here. California too. <laughs> yeah. So I, I really learned all these cool things. And then voice uh, of San Diego, just, they had announced they were looking for a reporter and I, I, I called them and asked what, what was going on. They recruited me. I couldn't take the job though. Cause my wife was moving away for a year and I wanted to stay with her but I, I had him bring a friend in and, and we ended up staying connected. I took a job about a year later. So I didn't help start Voice of San Diego, but I was right there at the beginning. What is Voice of San Diego all about? What, what is it that you guys encompass, touch on, or what, what is it that you thrive with? Yeah, so the, the idea was to create a, a different avenue for investigative work to come out, for, for good journalism to come out, and also for people to let things, you know, surface things that they feel like people need to know. That At that point, there was just the Union Tribune a couple other alternatives. But if you really wanted to get something known, you really had to convince the UT it was a big deal. And so they wanted an, an alternative. They wanted a different version. And they, they realized right away that it didn't need to be a print product, that they could save a lot of money not printing it. And they also realized that they could be a nonprofit and get a bunch of different sources of revenue in. And so we weren't the first nonprofit and we weren't the, there was other, you know, uh, public radio and stuff had existed for a while. But we, and we weren't the first online news organization, but we were the first to combine those for like one area and, and a metropolitan area like that. And, and now there's like 300 out there. So it was, they stumbled onto a really good model and 
we have now we have about 3000 donors and, um, and a bunch of sponsors try to pull it together and events and just try to do our best to make sure that, uh, we hold people accountable and, and also tell the, tell the stories that uh, aren't getting told every day. And I appreciate that. You know, I, I thumb through it and, and I'm reading it and I'm like a lot of the stories that you guys touch on down here for the South Bay, including Barry Logan. Um, I consider that the South Bay sometimes. Sure. I, I was reading one that you guys posted uh, maybe three, four days ago as it relates to the coverage and, and the, the election coming up and not pe- people just aren't showing up. People yeah. just aren't paying attention, which is kind of the main focus of what we have here is bringing our mayoral candidates in Chula Vista and shining a little bit of light on them so people understand what's going on. You guys do a really good job of, nice. of lifting up the rocks and exposing and letting people know. And exposing comes in many different shapes because I've also seen you guys being at the center of a lot of controversies yes. and, and exposing a lot of politicians and community leaders. As the CEO, as editor-in-chief, how do you handle that? Like how Do you shield the brand? or Are, are you the guy that has to touch and answer all these questions? Do you actively seek out these kinds of stories? I think it's more that journalists are feisty. You know, a lot of people say they're liberal, but I think they're more like anti-authoritarian. You know, they just want to hold people accountable. They want to do good stories. We also provided them with, we have nine, what we call what we stand for principles. So we believe in uh, everybody should have access to high quality education. Everybody should have access to affordable housing. It doesn't mean necessarily government. It just, it just means like you should be able to live, right? You should, uh, we believe in uh, uh, infrastructure being good, streets being good, stuff like that. So that we, we can hand the reporters that and say like, you can go and do a story and be passionate about what's wrong, right? But let's be fair about the solutions. So if, if we uncover, we did a story several years ago about, um, uh, emergency response, like uh, medical and fire response to certain parts of C- the city of San Diego was a lot slower than other parts. And, you know, it's no surprise that a lot of underserved communities were getting slower response if they called 911. And so we, we did a lot of work exposing that problem. It came, became a big part of the mayoral campaign that year of the debate about how to handle that. But we didn't take a side on exactly what they should do to solve it. But we did say like that needs to be solved. And so that's like our kind of approach going through this. Like we're going to be passionate if a school's not doing right by students. If uh, if there's a road that's not good, we're going to be passionate. They need to deal with it. We can be fair about the solutions on that. And so I think I, journalists are passionate about doing that work. You know, they they got into this work not to make a bunch of money, obviously, but to to try to do something that helps people understand their community. The other thing I'm really passionate about is the, the, the concept of uh, explaining things. It is extremely complex how all this stuff works. Uh, I spent a lot of time covering the, the new stadium effort that the Chargers were on. By for, design. For, for a decade. Yeah, by design, it's confusing. And exactly, that's the thing is all of these things are so complex that it is itself a form of elitism, that complexity. And so I think of it as a, as a real calling to, to deconstruct all those things so that if you're trying to understand why the Chargers are doing X or Y with their stadium or their financing or whatever, that I'm there to help you understand the land use laws, the, the election laws, all these things there, because there is such a small group of people who understand all those things and they run everything. And so that deconstruction, that translation of what happens is a real big part of what I try to do. And and I think, uh, I think it's really prized. And I think that's part of why people aren't involved because they literally don't understand what the Port of San Diego is. Yeah. Why is why is Chula Vista Elementary School District one thing and Sweetwater Union High School District is another? How does that all work? You know, these things, you have to, it takes months to understand them. That's what I love about your newsletter 
Because, I mean, you, you preface it by saying it. Let me break the news down for you. You know, yeah. let, let me tell you what's going on. Right. And I love that, man. Like right. just listening to the podcast, like I said, I, I work early shifts and I get an opportunity to just kind of go through a lot of podcasts and, and just kind of rush through them. When the pandemic, kind of, when we were in the thick of it, I didn't get that much time. Yeah. So now it's like, oh man, I got, I got to find my news elsewhere. Right. I feel the pandemic kind of exposed certain things. Well, I mean, politics in recent years has also exposed certain things on where we should be getting our news sources from, from media outlets and whatnot. From a personal perspective and, and from the people that I know, I know Voice of San Diego started becoming more prevalent in our life at that point. And it's like, okay, man, I don't really like living in, in this or in that, the black or the white. I live in the gray. Right. And I feel like you guys really do an excellent job of, of fuck all the shit on the side. Like, this is what we're coming for. This is what we need to talk to people. This is what we need to explain. This is why this is relevant to you. This is why this is important, you know, and that's where I enjoy that. You're, you're the fucking CEO and editor in chief of this. Yeah. How is that? How does how does that feel? How difficult is that to wear both hats? I think that the the goal. I, I love creating jobs for journalism for journalists, and so that's one part of my job is to make sure that we make payroll. You know what it's like. Yes, sir. <laughs> yes, sir. Yeah, I just heard you talking about a W-2 employee, you know, W-2, like you, you're trying to make things work for them. And so in many ways, I feel like I work for all my employees. Like I hold them to a high standard, but if they meet that standard, then it's my job to make sure that I don't let them down. I think about, about 10 years ago, I had to let um, three employees go, three journalists. And I, the trauma of that day when I had to let them go will live with me forever. And I'm almost glad that I had to go through that because I, I never going to let it happen again, or I'm not going to you know, willingly let it happen again. I'm going to fight for them all the time because um, jobs, the, these journalism roles are so important to be that advocate for the community's voice, to listen to all sides, try to make sense of things. It's so valuable. And so I get a lot of pride out of doing that. The, the other side though, is that, I'm still a journalist. I write all the time. I try to because I, I care about it. If, I, if I'm having a bad week, it's really easy for me to think like, well, I didn't do any journalism this week. <laughs> That's probably why I feel the way I feel. It's just part of what I need to like continue to thrive. And so I, I, I work to try to make sure that, uh, that that sort of high quality journalism is, is being taught to a new generation of folks who can, who can then carry it out and we can expand. And I think eventually I'll either, you know, go fully into the journalism side or I'll go fully into the run in the, the operations side. But I think for now, this is where I've, I've found just, you know, trying to make it all work. And I will always uh, push hard for that. And I love stirring up um, the trouble, but not just for the trouble's sake, but because we got some big problems here. We have a tremendous amount of poverty, tremendous amount of homelessness and um, inequality, inequity of opportunity. Even in the same school district, you have two schools that are just completely different, offering far less opportunities in some cases or far worse uh, teacher experience or teacher value. And and I think like that kind of stuff is, uh, I, I, I feel like I have to keep doing it. I have to, you know, we have pollution, we have climate change, we have uh, beaches that need to be protected. We have so many things and, and I'll just never not care about pushing that. And, and so going around the community and telling people and taking opportunities like this to, to, to expose people to that, that work and that, that quest is, uh, is, is, is my life. I love it. This passion, has it always been there or when you had children, is that something that kind of flickered and turned for me, it's the latter. 
As soon as I had kids, I could give a shit about anything else prior. Like, oh, whatever, I got to do this, I got to do this, you know, whatever. But as soon as I had children, wife, you know, I feel like certain lights were turned on that were never on. Absolutely. I think uh, in some ways it's kind of the opposite for me. I, I was always this like feisty, you know, rebellious kind of revolutionary college student. And then I was like, I calmed down a little bit, but I was so, I'd write just really intensely in like 2008, 2007, I was a lot different type of voice. Uh, and then I had kids and I think in a way, like I started really focusing more on like coaching softball, you know, and stuff nice. like that. However, education, yeah, uh, opened my eyes completely. My son is autistic and he had a lot of trouble in his kindergarten time and a lot of uh, behavioral concerns and stuff like that, things that came up. And when we realized what was going on with him, we were able to get a lot of support, help him out and get the kind of services that he deserved. And I got to tell you, it gives me nothing short of just regular nightmare feeling that there's a kid out there in a less advantageous position who's maybe being seen as like not as good a kid or bad behavior. He's being put on a different path of discipline, maybe even jail someday. And it's all because, you know, he's not, may, may not have the same advocates or the same resources that we had. And so that kind of thing, like it, it, I, I truly mean it. Like I, I can't live with that. And so what am I doing to make sure those people have a voice if they do feel like they haven't been treated right by the system or get the resources other people do? And so, but then also just the, the concept of, you know, having opportunities, great education and, and such, um, having the kinds of support and just knowing that there's other communities that have more than, than, than ours or that other places. And that's just, that's not right. And, and when I was watching the pandemic and there was, you know, private schools that were able to get schools open faster, they were able to give a better experience online to some kids. Like, why? Like, what are we doing? You know, what, why is this okay? How are we okay with all that? So yeah, I, I in a way I kind of, um, took a, took a, a different detour from the passions, but in another way I added more. Yeah. I love that you bring that up. I mean, I have, we were talking, I have children here in the school district in Chula Vista and it is a little weird the way certain schools in the same school district get certain funding when others don't, you know, part of what we do here at the Emo Brown podcast is we have a foundation and we we surround ourselves with part of the foundation. We have a lot of educators. Yeah. We have a lot of educators with social workers. We have people who, you know, same walks of life as me, you know, you know, we were taken care of, but now we're a little older. We have kids. We want to do more. We want to do our best to be our best. It's kind of what we do. It's like our doing good in the hood is our motto. Chilvis Elementary School District is vast. It's long. I, I, it's huge. You go, it spans from here, from the Bay, all the way to East Lake, to the right. mountains, pretty much to the edge of Hamul. And yet you just start seeing that. I had a representative, a counselor come in from one of the schools here, uh, John Montgomery Elementary here on the west side of Chula Vista. And he was telling me, man, we don't have, we don't have nearly the amount of financing to take care of the kids that require it. Whereas if you go to a school on the east side of Chula Vista, they've just got all of this and all of that to the point where like, we can't get funding to take our kids to sixth grade camp. Is there something that you guys can do and help out? So yeah, well, obviously we're like, if we can do it, we're going to help. And we did. Having kids in this school district, it just boggles my mind that not everybody plays on the same plane. It's like, if you guys have a certain amount of a budget, why isn't that spread out prioritized as opposed to just kind of like, Oh, you know what? Yeah. It's, it's quite interesting. There's, there's, uh, there's kind of a few things going on. One is that the official sources of money, they are spread equally. And then some of the, the lower performing, lower supported schools with the lower tax bases, 
those those do get more money through the new system. The problem is, or not the problem, but one one sort of outcome of that is that some of these schools in 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 more wealthy areas are able to build a whole foundation structure around the school. You'll have a school in like Bird Rock Elementary. Well, they'll they'll say like it's expected for parents to donate a thousand bucks a Put year, which is a sort of tuition if you think about it. So if you have you know four hundred kids, maybe 200 or 300 of the families are able to do that. It's $300,000 that they can use for arts programs or for um, PE additions or for instruments or for art or, you know, all kinds of different things that they're able to do. And, and so you have this weird situation where sometimes the schools that are, that are a lot more underserved have more money coming in for support but then in the middle, you have this kind of gap, right? You have these, these schools that are, it's not a poor neighborhood, but it's also not able to do a thousand bucks a family, right? And so those kind of schools fall through the cracks a lot. And then the other thing that happens is you got a school, we see this all the time. You see a school that's able to uh, attract a lot of teachers. The teachers, the most experienced teachers, they'll wait in line to go to that school and teach there. But then some of the schools that are a little bit um, less, they have a worse reputation for whatever reason, they have lower performing on test scores, stuff like that. Those teachers will get out of there as soon as they can. And so you'll have a, they'll, they'll be turning over teachers every couple of years. And that kind of inequity, it's, it's part of the system. And it's not one that we talk about a lot, but it's a big deal. You have teachers that spend 20 years at one school and one school that can't keep them mm-hmm. more than a year. And that turnover, that hurts everybody. And then you have, uh, right now, there's this huge explosion of, of scandal at the Patrick Henry High School where they got rid of a couple AP, a few AP uh, classes. Well, that happened at Lincoln High School. I wrote about it a, a couple years ago, a year and a half ago. And it was, it was it, I couldn't make it a big deal. But this one at Patrick Henry is like the biggest thing that's going on. And it's in, in, in San Diego Unified. It's going to get addressed. And that power of the parents' voice and that demand that they get the services they want that they'll, the squeaky wheel works in that case. Yep. And, and so, you know, you've got, a, you've got a school where the families are working two jobs or something. They don't have time to, to, to do that work. And, and it shows. And it shows in, the, in, in what that school is able to get from the district. Education is something that we focus on a lot now. Unsheltered homelessness is something else that's huge here in Chula Vista. And I can only draw comparisons and, and experience from here in Chula Vista. We went from really not having too much of a big presence in, in, in homelessness and, and just people living in the parks. So right around when the pandemic started and, 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 and the thick of it, it just, it exploded. Yeah. So when I have people come in here and they are community leaders or they work for a uh, city council or obviously running for mayor, I'm like, Hey, thoughts, what do we do? What's the approach? Is there a solution? How do we make it happen? They all pretty much kind of, well, most of them kind of give the same broad stroke with the, of an answer. But it's like, I feel like those two are the main topics that we deal with here in Chula Vista the most. You know, I yeah. almost feel like it's the, the, the education system and just poverty yeah. flowing into the streets. Yeah. I think there's a few things going on. One is that it's, it's kind of unfair that these mayors and local city leaders have had to, to tackle homelessness because it's just, it is a, it is a national, <laughs> yeah. it is a national, it's a state, it's a global inequity. It's a global poverty. And, and you're asking the mayor of Chula Vista to fix poverty. I mean, there's, there's a few tools she has, but far uh, insufficient for, for what's the, that's happening. The other thing that's happening is 
the cost of living in San Diego is Ridiculous. just is, and it's soaring. So it's not let, let, set aside housing, which we all know is just insane right now. I mean, the value of homes, the rents are just out of control. But then the the, the we have the highest water rates, we have the highest uh, power rates, we have high gas prices, we have uh, very it's very hard to maintain a car, store a car, insure a car, and fuel a car. And yet, you know, you cannot function in this community very well without a car. There are people who do. I admire them. They spend three hours on public transit every day, but it's, it's very, a tough gig. It's very, that's difficult. a tough and gig. That, that has costs, not just on, on your, your, your money, but on costs on your brain, on your mental health, when you're with your kids. I mean, that is tough to function without a good car here that you can store and insure and fuel. It is not an accident. It's not a coincidence that the cost of living is soaring and homelessness is soaring. The homelessness is the bottom rung of our housing market. It is the, and, and, and right now we have torn out all the cheapest housing options, the SROs, the other things we, we got rid of them for higher price uh, stuff. And so people are building tents themselves. And that's the third thing I would highlight is like something happened about 10 to 15 years ago. I don't know if somebody started handing out tents I remember the Occupy movement was going on where people were creating tents, tent cities. Something happened where homeless residents realized like, oh, I could put a tent over my head. And they got sick of being cold. They got sick of hiding. And the tents changed everything. It's a sense of privacy almost. If they get privacy, they get dignity. You know what? Everybody looks at the tents and they're like, those are people who want to be homeless. I look at tents and I see people who want homes. Yeah. They're building those homes. They're, they're going out of their way to create something for them, a space for them, a safe right. space. And, and in many ways, they're kind of saying like, you're not going to create space for me, so I'm going to stick it here. You come mess with me if you want. So we have this. We have this weird- and I'm going to have 10, 15 other people bring their tents. And now we're going to have a tent community. And we're, we're strong and just kind of maintaining and doing our own thing. And we're going to, and we're going to, and look, the, the health situation in these places is horrific. The trafficking issue, the drugs, the, the crime, the deaths, you know, you'll have a car careen off the road and kill six of them or something. You'll have uh, traffickers, you'll have stabbings, you'll have rapes, you'll have all kinds of things. But yes, they do create a sense of community and privacy and dignity. And that's what they want. And so when you go and offer them a, a thing, you say like, we're going to push you out of this area, but you can go stay at this shelter with you know, 150 other people in bunk beds in this kind of big room with no privacy. You can't have your pets. Not interested. You can't have your family. You can't have your pets. Of course, you know, six out of 180 of them are going are gonna to take them up on that. They don't want to do that. So we can keep bashing our heads and saying like, well, you have to go through our system or maybe we could channel that energy. They want to build homes figure out a place where we're okay with them doing that, you know, or it, open up an RFP. Do you have a warehouse? Do you have a parking lot? Do you have a, a giant uh, plot of land that you could, you could bring some of these folks in? If we're going to, I understand we can't let them fester and, and create these kinds of, they can't privatize our public land with their homes, but it's not working what we're doing now. So you, yeah, unfortunately you got to fix the housing market. You, Good luck. <laughs> you got to create the cost of living that they can handle and you got to, you got to figure out the dignity that you can provide. So it's a, it's an enormous problem. Damn. I was looking forward to these conversations. So I was thinking the whole time I was like, okay, Scott Lewis is coming in. I'm going to figure it out. Like, Scott Lewis is coming in. I better start asking about these things. Cause I know you, I listen to your podcast, yeah. the voice of San Diego podcast, yes. very popular podcast. 
And it's just like this, yeah. you know, it's like you guys cut to the core, go at it. And, it, and I feel it's very unbiased. And you guys have your facts and, and you have your research and say, this is what's going on. I, and I love that about that. You also do another podcast, uh, Good Schools for All. Yeah, we did Good Schools for All for a while. Uh, it's been on hiatus for a while. We, we ran over the summer and fall um, series called San Diego 101. It was kind of breaking down all these things we talk about. How does the housing market really work, how do school systems work. Such a beneficial resource for people, man. And it's specifically for us. Yeah. For us here in San Diego. Well, look, there's all these programs. You can go like with the Chamber of Commerce, you can pay a couple thousand dollars and get this program that'll teach you every week you'll go and you'll learn about how the water system works or how, but like not everybody has that opportunity. So we wanted to democratize that, make it more available, make sure, because there's nobody, a lot of people can, complain about like uh, they don't teach civics in high school or college well even when they do that well in those places they never teach about local government and this is the one that affects us the most it's right here what we're doing this is what matters most to our families right and people tell why do you care so much about who's running for governor because you know or mayor rather because it doesn't matter who's at the top of the food chain right. that is never going to come and affect us on our daily scale marriage list is going to have far more effect on your life than the president of the united states uh, every day of the week most thing obviously mm-hmm. there's a lot of things like immigration and, and climate and, and environment but the point is yeah like how we live every day is going to be uh, affected more by the police and the and the city workers than, than a lot of other federal, federal effects. And we know these people. We see them on the daily. I have businesses here. They come in and they come out. Yeah, so yeah. it's like, I feel like I'm cheating. Like, like I'm going straight to the source. It's like, hey, what's going on? What, what happened here? Right. What, what's going on there? What can we do to prevent these things? And la, la, la. It's like, I'm nosy. And then I have a show on Mondays called Metiche Monday, which loosely translates to pretty much like Nosy Monday, yeah. where we call like some of our little local leaders and say, hey, How's crime looking for the first quarter? We just finished, you know, right. starting April, had to go and he'll rattle off the stats. It's all right. What does that mean? Yeah. Okay. So you said you had 46,000 arrests in the first three months of the year. Like, what does that mean? I kind of want, like when I told you earlier, it's like, I like what you guys are doing and I just kind of want to make it even more smaller and just kind of a little bit more uh, Chula Vista and South Bay driven, yeah. you know, for personal selfish reasons. And, and, and I just look at it and I, and I love it. Right. You know, so how can people support what you guys do? So uh, I'm really excited. We, we're finishing up a strategic plan um, where we're going to, we outline four or five different things we want to do if we can get the resources to do them. So uh, creating a South Bay Bureau based here that would um, have an investigative reporting team that could do that work uh, for Chula Vista, San Isidro, all the, the city councils and the water districts in this area of like 500,000 people that just aren't being covered. They aren't not just covered, but like in the way that you can like make sense of what they're saying and find out things they don't want to talk about. And I think, uh, there's, but yeah, just, uh, the best thing, just get involved first and, and listen to the podcast, read the morning report we send down. Um, and then, if you're into that and you decide you want to support, we have memberships. Uh, that's how we pay the bills is we're trying to get thousands of people to donate. Some people can donate $5,000. Some people can only donate like $35, but each one matters because then we can take that and take it to other funders and say like, look how many people support this. Would you help us launch the South Bay thing? Or would you help us launch different things? And so, you know, a lot of people ask me how, how I've been able to do this for so long and not change jobs or whatever. And I, the, way, the way I told them is like, Every month, this is a new job. You know, True. everything changes so often. Uh, new challenges, new problems, new new wins, and so uh, it's it doesn't feel like the same job at all. 
stray away from this for a second. You mentioned earlier, you got a big old grin on your face when you said, coach uh, softball. Yeah. When did this start? Is this something that you did through like uh, prior to the pandemic? Because you got a big old grin. It's like something you look forward to doing now. Or? Oh, I've gotten really into softball. My Have daughter, you really? My, my <laughs> daughter's yeah. really into it. And, and um, I think, yeah, the pandemic, I was kind of, a lot of people were having some mental health yes, uh, tr- struggles. And I think that, I started coaching her team because they, they didn't have anybody and I was, I was into it and it was fun and it gave me a purpose. I don't, I'm not a guy that can like just lay around, you know, that doesn't relax me. Like what relaxes me is to pursue something completely different and the competitiveness, but also the challenge of getting girls involved, uh, fixing the, the, the park, you know, making sure everything works well, the, the minor politics of that situation just made it it gave me a different purpose and it gave me a lot to, to distract from the harder problems that we were dealing with. And like, uh, and I, I will always be into it. I mean, I'd coached my son's team. He never, he, he never really stayed into it. Uh, but my daughter got into it now. Now she's, uh, she goes to the Padres games with me. We, Heck yeah. we, she's got her favorite players. She, uh, she's, she, and, and, and I love it. It's, it's been the best thing for her and I am. Yeah. How did you guys deal with pandemic and, and, and the shutdown and being housed at home for, you know, months on end. It was tough. Uh, I, look, we did great. I should be clear. Like our health was fine. Our family stayed together. We stayed employed, you know, things like that were fine. I think that, uh, for my wife, especially it was very difficult to manage her job and her responsibilities and then do what she had to do for the kids education. Like everybody struggled with that. I acknowledge she bared the brunt of that as I tried to keep our operation alive, you know, and going and, uh, and, our kids struggled in the sense that uh, my daughter used to love going to school and she was, it was almost like she was like permanently embittered by what, by them shutting it down. Like she's, she's like deeply in a way kind of mad that that happened. And she does, you know, she understands intellectually what happened, but I think like there's, I don't think she'll ever look at school again the same way, unfortunately. But on the other hand, my son got to spend the whole year with my wife working on math and he's, he, he went from being really struggling with math to now he's soaring with it. And so it's like, you know, we kind of went through a couple of good things and we just, uh, we kept going and it was just like everybody did. It was just, it, it finally started easing up and getting better, but uh, it was, it was not the funnest time. <laughs> it really wasn't. I mean, like we were talking, chatting it before the podcast started. I mean, mental health, that was front and foremost, the most like delicate thing that we, everybody was dealing with. I mean, like you said, I was very fortunate. I was remained employed. I was a frontline. And it's another thing. A lot of people in Chula Vista were getting sick. People fail to realize we are the frontline workers. Absolutely. You know, we are the people that are going out there and making sure we work at the grocery stores. We work at uh, delivery services, UPS, man, whatever. Like yeah. we are the ones out there. Yeah, so you yeah. can't Zoom meeting a UPS delivery. You really can't. Yeah, you yeah. know, if you could, let me know. I'll, yeah. I'm in. I am all in. Yeah. But so it's like, I focused on this, yeah. you know, I focused on like, okay, you know, let me do a podcast, something where I can just kind of like, uh, empty everything else that I carry with me, you know, yeah. listen to music only got you so far after a while playing a new instrument, learning this, learning that for me, it was like, I just need to talk. I need to talk. I realized that if the more I talk, the better I feel, the better I feel, I go home in a much more pleasant mood, the much more pleasant mood I am. My kids are more responsive to what we're doing. They're more on board with whatever I'm trying to sell to them. Hey, let's go do jujitsu. Hey, let's go ride a bike. Let's go do this. As opposed to, we got to do this. We got to do that. I'm fortunate that I had that. I don't think a lot of people had that, man. And 
Yeah, I think there was a lot of actually. I think a lot of people though did. There was sort of two phenomenons that one was good, one was bad. One, the good part was there was so many people who were like working eighty hours over a you know line cook job. You know, back was hurting, and this gave them a chance to like rethink their entire life. You know, and and actually, I think a lot of what we're seeing now, the inflation, the people quitting and moving on, like that kind of needed to happen. Maybe, maybe a lot of people needed to, to, to think for a second, is that, is it all worth it? Is that my life? Yeah. Is that the the yeah. life I want? And so in that sense, I think there was good. My wife went through that. I went through a version of that and you, you find a different purpose and also our work found purpose. You know, it became clear to so many more people like what we were doing and why we were a valuable resource. And, and I wanted to like feed it. So I worked tons just kind of trying to feed it. The other thing that happened though, and this is not as good, was there is a, everybody's on edge and electricity, uh, you know, road rage type feeling coursing through the, the community right now of people arguing, fighting a little, you know, the kind of like, um, like the violence you saw at the Academy Awards, you know, like there's just something, there's an edge and, and then the polarized politics didn't help of, of just this, there's an edge, there's an edge and electricity and in people's interactions, the fights on planes, you know, the, the, and so that's not good. And I don't know what's going to take, what's going to take for us to like come down from that and, and relax a little bit because uh, that, and, and, and so I, I'm pretty worried about how that feels and how that's manifesting in different places, but um, well, sprinkle a little alcohol in the situation, yeah, yeah, exactly. you know, and, and people slowly coming out and getting reaccustomed to being amongst other people again, because yeah. we were locked up. We were pretty much indoors with our family. And, and I feel a lot of people forgot how things work in the real world. Yeah, absolutely. So I, we saw it firsthand, like our industry are the, the, the food server industry and, and just like the beer industry and the bar industry, people are just outlandish it, it, they're 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 quick trigger like it, everything just kind of escalates much faster yeah we never had issues never had issues and then all of a sudden it's like a, a new issue a week with uh some of my friends businesses and how they operate i don't know what it's gonna take because it's still going on i think it's get maybe it'll get better as people start to find their outlets again the sports their uh the different ways that they they took care of themselves uh i think that but we'll see, you know, what if we combine that edginess with another recession or something, you know, it could get, it could be much worse. Yeah. It could get gnarly. And quickly. So, so that's why I think it's, it's important. That's why in journal, in what journalism plays, you, what you're doing plays a role. Like we all need a shared story. And this is what I think when you were talking about how we're, we're in the middle or we're trying to like not take sides. I think, I think the thing that we do is that we have the, the opportunity to tell local stories and local stories are different than national stories because you can go check. You know, if there was a big sinkhole right here uh, in, the, in downtown Chula Vista and I reported that there was a sinkhole and you didn't believe me, oh, that's fake news. Oh, well, Scott was right. Look at that thing. You could, you yeah. could go look and you could verify. That's that, that on, a, on a bigger scale is what local journalism allows. You can go see Mary Salas and you can ask her if what I said was true and you can evaluate it, all those things. I think that, that 
nationally reporters and other, the reality-based community, the people trying to tell the story that everybody can share, they don't have that advantage. You just have to trust them in a way. And so that's created a, a world where people can just say like, they're wrong, they're, they're, they're fake news. So local has a different opportunity, but we have got to share a story. If we are going to make San Diego a better place, if we're just going to deal with the problems that we have, we have to be able to share a story about what's happening so that we can move on from it or, or address or it. From it. The, if there's a leak in the ceiling, we can all agree that there's a leak in the ceiling and deal what with it. What will we do to fix it? And, yeah. and so everybody, you, everybody who's telling that story, you know, doing the best they can to get more people to hear it and to agree and, or at least just bring their own version of it in. Because uh, if we don't share a story, we're not a community. We can't deal with anything. I'm all in, man. I'm, I'm sold on, on everything that you're a part of. What can we do to be more involved as a business or, or, or as my foundation or messages that we can convey and relay to our community? Like, what, what can, give me the elevator speech. What can I tell people about Voice of San Diego and everything you're a part of? You know, if uh, they can do three things, they can get educated and read with us. And, and then they can uh, second send us ideas and feedback of what needs to be better. There are people here who know more than what we're, we're reporting. They, we might do a story about the Chula Vista police department and they know what the real story is. They need to let us know. We are comfortable with people telling us that we're wrong. They do it every day or that we're not quite getting the whole thing. So come and tell us. That's what I need is for people to come and tell us, send a note, send whatever you can to, to help us. We have a tip line on the site where you can send some feedback back, voicesandiego.org. Then the third thing is if, you, if you've engaged with it, you're sending everything you can of different ideas, feedback and tips. And then the third, we're nonprofit. We're, we're funded by people. And if, if you have a, a few extra bucks, and you want to put it to that. We have a few benefits, events, and other things that come along. We'll do a live podcast. Uh, we're trying to organize one in a month for um, the Chula Vista uh, marriage race or something. So, or, you know, what, or just South Bay issues. Come to that. And, and, Heck yeah. and so I think that we'll, uh, uh, we're just trying to create a culture that people value this kind of work and, and let us know that, you know, I, I was somebody who's, coming at me on Twitter today with some different, you know, perspective. Well, that's great. Like, let me know what you think I should have done better and let's go after it. Podcast available on a weekly basis. Yeah. Every Friday, the voice San Diego podcast, uh, um, award winning. Yeah. Andrew Keats, uh, me and uh, Andrea Lopez Villafana that were, were, uh, she did that story, I think on our bio Logan about, uh, uh, the trucks. So they barred, they prohibited, you know, big trucks going through uh, bio Logan, but you can see them go past those sucks, uh, those signs all the time saying, don't go here with your trucks. And so why is that happening? She did a great story about why and what they're going to try to do to stop it. So, you know, those kinds of stories are only going to come on our radar if you tell us about them. So. Newsletter letter available on a daily. Yep. Uh, morning report every day, the politics report every Saturday. We have the border report every other Monday, environment report every other Monday and uh, North County Report every uh, Wednesday. We'll work on that South Bay Report soon. So. I always look at myself I'm like, damn, I'm always busy. Jeez. Yeah. But then I look at somebody who's really fucking busy, and then I'm like, oh, man, I'm in no position to complain or do anything. You are a busy guy, man. Well, they, you know, if you got something to get done, give it to a busy person. You know, they know how That's to manage. That's very fucking true. I, I have a great team. I, um, you know, the, the way busy people operate is they have, they have people they trust. You know, I, I, I have people I trust. You have people you trust. Like, it just... Uh, you, you trust people and you, you, you get done what you can. I appreciate you coming in, man. It's been awesome to just kind of go through a quick background on what you're all about. Yeah. Cause I, I know just by reading online and like you know, low key little 
fanboying out over here and just watching everything you do. But I appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule to uh, come in and just talk to us and, and an let honor, us yeah. know, man. Yeah. Forget this honor stuff. The honor's on our side, man. <laughs> People are always asking me, it's like, okay, when are you going to bring somebody out from South Bay? I said, hold on, it's coming. I wanted to own my backyard before I started bringing other people in. I want to know what's going on here. Yeah, but you, my friend, you guys have like, you got your, your finger in every little pot in San Diego. And you're, what you guys do is so beneficial. Yeah, thanks. Oh, it's, uh, it's great. And um, that's the kind of thing that makes me want to do it more. So thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, Scott Lewis. Thanks for joining us on this Voice of San Diego podcast bonus episode. And thank you to the Emo Brown podcast for letting us do that. Be sure to subscribe to the show so you never have to miss a special drop like this. We'll be back in your feed on Friday, as usual, with our weekly roundup of news. I'm Scott Lewis, the CEO and Editor-in-Chief at Voice of San Diego. You can find the Emo Brown podcast anywhere you listen to podcasts. It's hosted by Steve Garcia at the Three Punk Ales Brewery in Chula Vista. This show was produced in part by Nate John. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. (laughs) 